sell his tools. So on the day of the sale, they were neatly put out for public inspection. Tools like lust, pride, doubt, envy. And each one was clearly marked with a price tag. But laid aside from the pile was an unusual tool, well-worn and highly priced. Someone picked it up and said, what is this tool? Oh, that's discouragement, said the devil. And why is it so highly priced? The devil said, well, it's because with that tool, I can do something that I can't do with any other tool. I can pry open a person's heart and get inside, and then once inside, I can do anything to them that I want to do. And the reason why this tool is so effective is because no one knows it comes from me. That's an apocryphal story, but it does highlight the importance of the fact that many believers battle with discouragement. We get down on ourselves. We get our eyes off of the Lord. And the devil uses that tool to take away our energy, to neutralize our witness, to get our eyes off of Jesus, and to do anything he wants to do with us. And I think that might be the reason why the aged Apostle John, when writing to a group of people in what we call 1 John, suddenly changed his tune. If you have your Bibles, open up to the little epistle in the back of your New Testament called 1 John. Pastor Doug read the first 10 verses of chapter 1, and we are going to spend some time in chapter 2. Now, you have to remember that John is over 90 years old, and so often he calls all the believers his little children. He has a wonderful relationship with them. He sees the threats that are coming on the church, and he writes to warn them about these dangers. So he gives us his purpose very clearly in chapter 2, in verse 26. We have that on the screen. He says, I'm, I'm writing these things to, to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. A simple reading of the chapter uh, will, or of the little epistle will point out some of the characteristics of these antichrists. People who have believed the lie and who don't believe that Jesus has come from God. And so John is writing to warn them. And one of the ways he warns them is to spend a lot of time talking about what a real Christian looks like. If you were born again, this will be the result. But in writing that way, it seems as though he now pauses in chapter 2 because he's a little concerned. He has another purpose in writing this epistle. This is found in chapter 5. Chapter 5 Verse 13, I have written these things 
to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might know that you have eternal life. And so that word knowledge or to know is repeated throughout the epistle. A dual purpose, warning about the false teachers and writing to encourage true believers. It seems as though in his writing to disturb the false confidence of those who are not genuine believers. In the process, he fears that he might shake the faith of those who really are. You know, there are some preachers who have the unique ability to preach the gospel in such a way that they can make truly saved people feel lost. <laughs> it's often well-intended, but like John, we need to pause and focus on those encouraging things that we need to know and to understand our position before God that will never change. So that the simplest child of God with genuine faith in Jesus Christ indeed is a believer. And they should know it. Someone once said to a farmer, don't plow the garden simply to remove the weeds, you'll kill the crop. And in our effort to warn of the dangers, we sometimes damage the fruit. So let's take some encouragement today from 1 John chapter 2, designed by the aged apostle to lift our hearts from a spirit of discouragement or doubt and to give us the confidence, the confidence that we need to go forward in the Christian life and to truly enjoy him forever. John Stott says, John does not mean to give his readers the impression that he thinks they are living in darkness or that he doubts the reality of their Christian faith, the issues that he was talking about earlier. He wants to confirm them in Christ. So he stops his exhortations for a moment. He, he stops the explanations and he almost goes into poetry. This little section seems so out of character with everything else he's written up to this point. So I'm encouraging you to look at chapter 2 and verse 12. Follow with me as I read. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then he seems to repeat the same thing, but now in the past tense, not the present tense. I have written to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So, six statements. He's addressing three different groups, the children, the fathers, the young men. And the first time he addresses them is in the present tense, and in the second time is in the past tense, which in the end doesn't make a whole lot of difference. It's a literary device. It's like if you were writing a letter to a friend and you are saying, I'm writing to tell you, and then at the end of the letter you might say, I have written to tell you. 
So it's really the same thing, but it's done for emphasis. In other words, really get this. This is foundational stuff. He's not referring to the physical age or even in particular the gender of these people. It's not little children because they're young in age. It's not fathers because they're old in age. But he's referring to stages of spiritual growth and development. All of God's family, including the youngest believer, it's much like a human family with people at different levels and stages of development. But God wants us to know wherever we are, and all of these things should be true of all believers, ultimately, that we are enjoying a unique relationship with God that does end in eternal life and gives us great confidence and peace to know that. So let's look at the children first. And what we'll do is we'll take uh, both the first and the second uh, verses that deal with this particular group. So in verse 12, he mentions, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. That's the first thing he wants them to know. This is the earliest conscious experience of a believer. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, the first thing a Christian should know is that they are forgiven. They are not people seeking forgiveness. They're not people hoping to be forgiven. They're not people who are trying to merit it. No, no. These are people who know they are forgiven. And my friend, if you don't know you are forgiven, you won't be able to do anything else. You'll be filled not only with the doubts of uncertainty, but it will paralyze you from praying. It will paralyze you from witnessing. You'll spend all your time looking in instead of looking up. You've got to know you're forgiven. Acts 13, 38, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and it's by faith in Christ, simple but real faith in Christ, that forgiveness is yours. In this new experience, there's a freshness to it. There's an energy to it. The new love that you have for Jesus Christ. Remember that? When you first came to him and you were convinced that your sins are forgiven? Not only that, if we go to the next verse, or the next time they're mentioned, verse 14, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father, or you have come to know the Father. So not only do you, as a new believer, have the experience of sins forgiven, but you now have a relationship with the Father. It's what we talked about last week. You are reconciled to God. In our sin, we were separated and lost and dead, but now brought back into a harmonious relationship with the Father who made us for the very purpose that we would have fellowship with Him. The false teachers were telling these Christians, you cannot know this stuff. And John says, oh, yes, you can and you must. In fact, it's for the new believer who understands that now they belong to the family of God, that they look up to heaven and cry, 
Abba, Father. Galatians 4, Romans 8. It's for that new believer who now understands that his prayers are our Father praying with the family who art in heaven. My Father. And there's this wonderful, intimate relationship as a child of God. By the way, it's quite interesting that the Greek word in verse 12 for children is a word that speaks about newborns. And the Greek word in verse 13 is paideia, where we get the word pedagogue. And the training aspect of instructing little children. So it's little children who are just born in the family and these little children who are going through their early steps of education spiritually. Why, these people are forgiven and they come to know the Father. But John doesn't stop there. He gives us the reason for this. And he says that you have been forgiven, verse 12, on account of his name or for his name's sake. Some translations have it. And I just have it on the screen because of Jesus. Never forget this. Forgiveness and reconciliation to the Father cost you nothing but Christ everything. And it's for the name, the sake of the name, the when you speak about the name of someone in Scripture, you're speaking about that person and everything they do. Often, both in the Old and New Testament, we're told to honor the name, to believe in the one who is the Lord Jesus Christ accomplishing our salvation. For instance, Psalm 25, verse 11, For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, even though it's great. Or Psalm 106, Yet he saved them for his name's sake. It's for the sake of Jesus that the Father casts your sin into the deepest sea and that the Father clothes you with the righteousness of his Son. It is for Jesus' sake that you're forgiven. And you know the Father. So I ask you the question, do you know that you're forgiven? And are you developing a relationship with the Father? And are you giving all the glory and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, he goes to the next group, fathers, which you and I would think, in the normal order of things, it ought to be the young men. But he goes to the fathers and says in verse 13, I am writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And then verse 14 is identical, except with a change in tense. I have written unto you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Again, we're not talking about people who biologically have offspring. We're speaking about a spiritual stage. And you say, well, they have come to know the Father. That's the first thing we learn about these. The fathers have come to know the father, the one who is from the beginning. In fact, the language is really the same as it was for the little children. But the difference here is that they have come to know the father. The reason they have come to know him is because over a period of time, they've gone deeper. In other words, the knowledge of the new believer is fresh and real 
but limited, and the knowledge of a father, one who has walked a long way in the same path of discipleship, has gone deeper into his relationship with the Lord. Why, that person has stability. If the new Christian has energy and freshness, it's the mature Christian now who has stability and wisdom. Their knowledge ripens with age, their relationship more intimate with experience. Nearer, my God, to thee, nearer to thee. Even though it be a cross that raises me, this will always be my song. I want to be closer to God. The closer that we get to God, the way God often draws us to himself is through a cross, through a challenge. And we're staring one right in the face that has caused all of us to be confused, knocked us for a loop. And yet one of the things God wants for us is to deepen our relationship with the Father. These may be older individuals, but they don't have to be because some people walk with God in such an intimate way that soon they can be called mature, wise leaders in the faith. But notice it says that because of this, they have known the one who is from the beginning. In other words, they have gone so deep in their relationship with God that now they're beginning to understand some of the characteristics of his person. And, and this probably emphasizes the eternality of God. If you go to John 1, 1, the gospel, it says that uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or even in 1 John chapter 1, it talks about we've known Him from the beginning, this one who is the Word of life revealed to us. They're learning something about the fact that God is immutable, and God is perfect, and God is eternal. Psalm 90. Lord, you've been our dwelling place for every generation. And before the mountains were born or you were brought forth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. One of the great characteristics of mature believers is this sense of stability because they've walked long enough and they've been through enough highs and lows to realize everything in this world changes except God. Jesus is the same yesterday, day, today, and forever. And this fact that every, everything about God is, is certain and it remains, there's something I can count on, right? There's something I can believe in. And I find that through all of these battles over my life, that God brings me back to a good place of resting in his love and care. And so wise Christians, mature believers, seem to take difficulties and trials in such a different way than the immature believer who freaks out. Where is your faith? Is it in the solid rock that keeps you going? Or are you discouraged because 
your view of God is still a little fuzzy. And if your view of God is fuzzy, you'll give in to the lie. By the way, count how many times the word lie or liar is used in 1 John. And it is amazing. If you don't know God, you'll believe the lie. And the lie will quickly take you into discouragement. Someone said, time hurries on, but God is everlastingly the same. And those who know this are consciously already living in eternity. This world is not my home. I need to be here. I need to be present. I need to be doing what God has called me to do. But how can I live with eternity's value in view, as we used to say? How can I consciously live in eternity? Because in one sense, I'm in it. I have eternal life now. I better consciously live in eternity now. And I do that by knowing the one who is from the beginning, the Alpha and Omega. So with the children, there is fresh energy. With the fathers, there is mature stability. And now with the young men, there is vitality. You go from new believers to mature believers now to strong believers. There's a sense of life and bravery in youth. Why he left these to the last, I don't really know. And again, we're not talking about gender here. We're talking about those who have now developed. What does he say about them? I am writing to you, verse 13, you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And he brings up that same theme in verse 14. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. So these are overcomers. They fought battles. And they've won. They've been in the ditch. They've been under fire. But their conflicts have become conquests. Too many believers are falling so easily to the temptations around them. And it's because they forget they're forgiven. And they don't know the Father. And they're not finding strength to be an overcomer. John will later tell us that faith overcomes the world. They're overcoming the evil one. Our battle is not with people. I hear there's an election coming this week. Oh, may it pass quickly. <laughs> and I don't know what God has in store. I could see God's will... going either way. Because sometimes God's will is that he just gives us what we've been asking for. I don't know what's going to happen, but I need to know the Father. It's the only thing that's going to get us through this, whatever happens. We need to know God. And times are challenging enough, but our battle's not with people. Oh, I hate that political party, and I hate that person. Where are you getting that? Read 1 John. It's all about loving others. 
God says, love your enemy and even those who persecute you. For our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness, the, the stratagems of the kingdom of darkness. We battle against the evil one. Here he is mentioned. And when you pray, lead us not in temptation, in, into temptation. It, it probably is more along the lines of don't let me fall to temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. That's what we call the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not with people. They're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy, just like you used to be, just like I used to be. We have a message of grace for them. The Christian life is not just the gift of forgiveness. It's not just the joy of fellowship with the Father. It's fighting the good fight of faith. And that's what these young men are doing. By the way, it is significant that all of the verbs in this little poetic section are in what we might call, or what, we, what is called the perfect tense, which simply means a past action has ongoing and continuous results. I have been forgiven, and that event continues with ongoing consequences. I know the Father, and that ought to continue with blessing upon blessing. I have overcome the evil one, and by the grace of God, and for the sake of Christ, I need to battle in his strength to overcome again. Now, why are these young men strong? The reason, or the, the reason they overcome is because they're strong. But I ask the question, why are they strong? And there's a great hint here. It says, because the word of God lives in them. Verse 14, I have written to you, young men, because you're strong. How do they get so strong? The word of God lives in you. And that's why you overcome the evil one. It hit me as I was studying anew and afresh this epistle. And this is what I love about the word of God. You see things you've never quite seen before. Look on the screen at chapter 1, verse 10. Paul is saying that if we say that we don't have any sin, we call God a liar. If we say that we've never sinned, we deceive ourselves. And his word has no place in our hearts. What does that mean? We ignore it. It doesn't take up space. It's not important, strategic, significant. It has no place. I don't mean to offend you when I say that opera has no place in my life. It doesn't. I mean, I'm impressed with the ability of those singers, but I get frustrated with the fact that I don't know the language, and it seems to be a little over the top. Even though I enjoy theater, it's like, ah, let me have a root canal. <laughs> it has no place in my heart. But look at chapter 2, 
in verse 14. The young men are strong because the word of God lives in your heart. What does that mean? It has a place, a dominant place. It's active. It's forming and molding. It's convicting and training. It's instilling bravery. In other words, you can't know that you're forgiven, and you can't know the Father, nor go deeper with Him, or overcome the evil one, or be strong unless the Word of God lives, lives in you. Oh, I memorized a couple verses when I was a kid. Good start years ago. Does it have any place in your heart today? The Bible tells us, according to Colossians chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I'll tell you one of the reasons, and it may not be the only reason, but one of the reasons you're given to discouragement, that tool of the devil that he loves to use on you so much, is because you don't know the word. Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, he answered the Pharisees, you are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection were giving up. And Jesus walks along with them and they don't know it's Christ. And what does he do? He begins to expound the scriptures with the scriptures. The Old Testament and Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, all the things about himself. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he walked with us in the way and opened up to us the scriptures? And once they began to understand the truth of scripture, depression left. And excitement came in. Now, as we said last week, there are many reasons for depression. Sometimes it's physical, but often it is spiritual. And the two are interconnected and go hand in hand. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know, at a church like South, where we try to preach the word on a regular basis, one of the greatest dangers is that we're dull of hearing. Hebrews chapter 5. I've heard this before. I know you have. In fact, I, I think it's rather good that I don't bring to you something new, but something old. But you become dull of hearing, it says in Hebrews 5. I become dull of hearing. I've heard this before. And the Word of God, if it has a place, I'm ignoring it. I need the Word of God to live in me. That Word, according to Hebrews chapter 4, that is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I need the promises of God in my heart. I need the knowledge of God in my soul and mind. Or I will fall prey to the evil one every day. And so, as John writes to these young believers, he's saying, I want you to have it all. You're all in the family, whether you're a new believer or you're kind of in the middle ground or you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. But really, this is for all of us. And we need to know it so that we can, by the grace of God, 
live it. There was a story of a little boy who fell out of bed one night and his mother heard the fall, went to his room, picked him up, put him back in bed and said, son, what happened? And he said, well, I'm not sure, but I think I went to sleep too close to the place where I got in. And I'm afraid that happens to believers. Sometimes we fall asleep too close to the place where we got in. And we're ripe for a fall. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given to us such hope in the scriptures. And sometimes they're so challenging that they set us back. And Lord, easily we can misunderstand. Or well-meaning people can say things in such a way that it wounds our spirit. And if we're not coming to you and relying on you by faith, we will fall prey to every temptation the devil will use, like discouragement. Lift our souls today to heaven so that we might see Jesus and for his sake realize we're forgiven and that we know the Father and we can fight a winning battle. Make the word of God live within us. Take a moment of quiet prayer to think about what God has said to your heart. If you don't know Christ, trust him. And if you do know him, determine to make the word of God a living, vital part of your soul. Pastor